Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Missing our South Carolina connections. It's Election Shock Therapy. Joining me on this Google studio, I'm Chris Moore, and here is... Matt Cookum. Good to be here. And this is a two-man podcast today. Uh, Andy Bramson is traveling, and it's just the two of us, Matt. So we get a chance to... We don't even have a moderator to mute our mics. I know. It's just going to be this like two-man, like, duke it out, free-for-all. It's going to be epic. Just, just debate chaos. Yeah. So did you make it all the way through the debate last night, Matt? I did. I did. Um, and yeah, thankfully, it wasn't as much of a train wreck as the first presidential debate. So um, it was still depressing, but not in a completely soul crushing sort of way. So <laughs> just 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 moderate malaise. <laughs> yeah, just this sinking feeling of of I can't believe we're here um, and I just want this whole thing to be over. Um, yep. So, yeah. But, so we're talking yeah, we only have what less than two weeks. We're we're coming down to the wire. We are. We're twelve days away from the election. We're gonna just just to give people a preview of what's happening. We're gonna spend a little bit of time, just a little bit of time today, reflecting on the purpose of debates, and then we're gonna look more at some of the ways that we do polling in the United States, the ways we do voting in the United States, and the ways that we do. Um, maybe a little bit of modeling in the United States and thinking about what do we know about the election 12 days out? What could still happen at this point? Are things, is the dust mostly settled or are there things that could still break the race? So first, before we get into any of that, on the more narrower topic, this was a pretty normal, I use that term with air quotes around it. Oh, huge, uh, huge air quotes. uh, Debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And we are not a media podcast, so we're not going to go into great detail on how Kristen Welker did as a moderator, although I think she did pretty decent, or the format and style. But both uh, candidates were much more controlled in their... In their delivery this time, they uh, Donald Trump interrupted a lot less, and that seemed to make for what sounded about the most normal uh, political interaction they've had in this electoral cycle. Yeah, the uh, the winner of tonight's or last night's debate rather um, is the mic mute. Um, the, the fly <laughs> won the first one, and the mic mute won the second one. Yep. Um, and I think that um, compelled Trump. And I, I mean, it was clear that he wasn't that he did try to, he did try to shout over the, his muted mic. Right. So he sort of fell in line. Um, but it d- did seem like the mic mute provided that sort of constraint. Um, and it seemed to work fairly well. And it, it ended up actually, I think helping Trump and that it, um, allowed him to have sort of a more normal sort of back and forth that you typically see in these sorts of debates. Um, you know, some, sometimes of, you know, two minute monologues, but also, you know, some sort of, sparring and some direct sort of interaction without the the mics being cut off so overall that made for a more normal night but of course you know does it you know we should always ask ourselves you know do these things matter um you know in a weird sort of way it did seem like the first debate kind of in conjunction with trump catching covid did seem to matter a little bit and that he um that he seemed to tick down the polls right 
course, that's tightening up maybe just a little bit right now. Um, but, you know, yeah, Trump had a fairly good night, but Biden held his own. But what Trump really needed was Biden to have a meltdown and Biden yes. did not have a meltdown. So um, so in the end, it's it's kind of a wash, I'd say. Yeah, I think we're tipping our hand a little bit into what we're going to say later on in this podcast. Yeah. But you really would have needed one of these two candidates to do something that made them look demonstrably um cognitively ill-equipped to be president um you'd have needed uh joe biden to really just almost have like a a fugue state of of confusion or trump to just literally drop racial epithets on the uh on the debate stage some and um instead what we got was kind of uh um uh, kind of kind of the best version of what they're capable of being in public, right? Joe right. Biden was pretty crisp and sharp. Trump was bombastic but controlled. And at least through the first, uh, I, I'd say through much of the debate, was both of them are quite coherent, um, in which they're not relatively. All, these are not <laughs> relatively coherent speakers relative to other politicians in America. Yes. And and they both they really both held it together. So. I, yeah, I don't think this changes much of anything. There's plenty of pundits who want to focus on specific things, specific candidates said. Joe Biden probably will get, Donald Trump will probably get a campaign commercial out of Joe Biden saying we're going to transition away from oil right. uh, and fossil fuels. And Biden will probably get something from Trump talking about uh, the coronavirus. And he just has some of these, some sort of weird phrasings. Uh, sometimes I don't think serve him well, you know, yeah. he loves this line that he's the best president for African-American men since Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. and I, that's it's a line that work. work and he needs, no. to but anyway, I, I don't think those things shift the race. I no. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think Trump probably could have done a little bit more prep that would have um, helped him out. Right. Cause he, he didn't really go after Biden about the court packing issue. Like that was just, I mean, there was a question about, um, about the Supreme court, but Trump sort of passed on it. Um, it was kind of a big miss. Of course, Biden has issued a press release actually yesterday. He's saying, I'm going to appoint a commission into, um, you know, depoliticizing the court, which is, you know, very vague, but a very politician thing to do. I'm going to appoint a commission to look into this controversial matter, right? As a way to I'm sure John it. Roberts is thrilled that Biden wants to yeah. have a commission on the politicization of the court. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting, right? I mean, um, I mean, we, we could talk about this, but I mean, you know, it seems like, you know, the majority of Americans are actually in favor of Amy Coney Barrett being, you know, appointed to the Supreme Court interestingly yeah. enough. And there's also a majority of Americans that um, don't really like the idea of increasing the size of the Supreme Court. So this is like one of the few things in which like Trump actually has some public opinion on his side. Most of the other topics last night, public opinion is not on his side, right? So this was, I think, kind of a miss, um, a miss for him. Um, and his attempt to, you know, explain the Hunter Biden scandal just didn't work very well either because he didn't sort of walk through the ideas or the evidence, however, you know, however shaky some of it might be. He never sort of laid out clearly for people the the arguments. And and these arguments, you know, if you're in MAGA world, you know, you're living and breathing this stuff. But most Americans are just not following this super closely and they're just going to be confused. So it wasn't he maybe could have sold that better. Um, but but he didn't. So a couple key ways I think Trump could have done better. Um, you know, Biden did did okay. He had a few moments, um, and that's all Biden had to do is just sort of hold his ground um, and not slip up and do anything bad because he's sitting yeah. in a pretty comfortable position right now. 
Yep. And he had a few decent, I think, kind of decent lines. Yeah. He he landed sort of a he landed on temperament pretty well. Yeah. And I think that's you know to the extent that people are still trying to make up their minds about this, they're right. probably making they're probably low information voters. And by the way, political scientists often use the term low information voters. We're not needing that to throw shade at people. These are just people <laughs> who for, for, who may be very intelligent but are not investing a lot of in, in knowledge in the political process. And when you are a low information voter, you tend to vote a little bit more on temperament and affect and right. and biden managed that pretty well tonight yeah so. another interesting dynamic um typically in elections you see this you know the challenger going after the incumbent for the incumbent's record of course biden did that very hard on covid which is the the logical political thing yeah. to do, right um what is interesting though is that um trump you know is in the position of being able to say like well hey biden is his own sort of incumbent right in virtue of the fact that he was vice president for eight years under Barack Obama, and so I can attack Obama's record on on various points. Um, so it was like we had 1.5 incumbents on stage, um, and and of course, you know, this has limited utility, I think, for Trump because most people look back at Obama and the Obama years and say, "Hey, he was fine." Unless you're you're a strong Republican, you'll probably have a, a favorable view of of Obama and his presidency. So I'm not sure how well that works, especially in bringing on board, you know, some of the, the very few swing voters that are left out there who have not cast their ballots yet. One, one quick thought on this. And again, I, I, I we don't need to take too much time on this because I really don't think it shifts the, shifts the election numbers. But to, last night was the first time I heard Joe Biden and Donald Trump use the words Biden care. <laughs> that was really interesting. Did you, was that have you have you heard that before? No, I hadn't. Um, it, it really um, caught my ear, and I thought that was that was interesting. And, and I guess for Biden, it makes some sense, right? Because actually, Obamacare is now a fairly popular. Um, you know, most people, unless again you're a strong Republican, um, you know, like the idea of of you know a guaranteed health insurance, right? Maybe they want to keep the private insurance, but they like the idea of health insurance being guaranteed. And also that um, that you know that they're not going to they will still have coverage even if they have pre-existing conditions, right? So they right. like certain features of the Affordable Care Act. Yep. So it makes sense for Biden to maybe say, "Hey, we're going to take the good things of this of the Obamacare and we're going to expand. We're going to make it even better." Right. And this is really where the where Obamacare wanted to be back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Right was the plan they came up with plus a public option. And all Biden is basically saying is, I'm gonna reboot Obamacare and I'm gonna throw a public option on top of it. And what Trump was left saying, which really surprised me was, um, what I think what Trump could have said slash should have said was, you tried to do this back in 2009, people didn't like it then, they're not gonna like it now, period. Right. But what, instead, what he said is, if you do this, People's Medicaid—you're you're, going to destroy people's Medicaid. You're going to destroy people's Social Security, which is a really weird way of accusing someone of having socialist policies. Is accusing them of getting rid of your <laughs> socialist programs. Um, yeah. I, I just don't—I yeah. don't know that 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 critique landed. And I think there's a, probably a better way of attacking. If if Biden wants to own healthcare reform, there's a way of attacking that. I don't think they got quite got to it last night. Yeah, but uh, both sides, I mean, this is a tangent, but both sides have just been really incoherent on healthcare, right? So um, just in how they've approached this. I mean, so, you know, the Trump and, you know, various parts of the GOP have made so many efforts to try to, you know, get rid of Obamacare, like altogether, and you get, you know, 
26 Republican attorneys general, you know, getting together in this lawsuit to try to get the entire Affordable Health Care Act struck down, which, by the way, for all the fear mongering about that, it's not going to happen, right? Because of this little thing called severability. Um, the Supreme Court is not going to strike down the Affordable Care Act wholesale. They will only strike down the part of it that's in question, right? Mm-hmm. So the Republicans, but the, so the Republicans, they got to know this, right? But they basically handed a gift to the Democrats and saying, like, well, the Democrats can turn around and say, hey, they want to take away all your health care, right? They want to remove the Affordable Care Act. Um, and it just creates this, just this really messy conversation and shouting match, which just isn't, it's just completely incoherent. And it's, it's annoying. Yeah. It's really annoying. But anyway, tangent over. Yeah. Well, so that the debate itself isn't going to move uh, the election. Let's talk about the ways election maybe actually has moved. So you've pulled together a few things to look at here. And why don't you walk us through just some of the trends you've observed over the past few weeks, both for the presidential election, but also for the very competitive Senate, uh, who, who will control the U.S. Senate, the House yeah less interesting uh 538 politics has a model where they predict that the um democrats have a 96 percent chance of holding on to the house yeah, right now but, but trump says he's they're gonna win back the house so you just wait well, and see chris there is a four percent chance that that happens and i want to talk to you about the what happens <laughs> in small percentage chance things but yeah yeah, yeah. the senate is much closer to a toss-up the presidency yeah. is much closer to that let's yeah. let's walk through those a little bit what do you say okay yeah, so so Biden's lead, um, you know, in the national polls, just starting there, has been has been stable. Um, there's not, you know, it's it's been increasing over the past two or three weeks. And as I mentioned, um, this is perhaps a sort of response of the public to Trump's debate performance in the first debate, and also his catching COVID, um, seemingly out of you know basically negligence, right? Um, and some of the White House events. Um, especially surrounding the Amy Coney Barrett sort of rollout. Um, and and yeah, it seems like he took a bit of a hit. Biden gained a slight lead. Maybe over the past few days, we've seen a slight narrowing. But the important thing is that um, the numbers seem to be pretty stable and Biden is, is pretty far ahead in the national polls. Now, in state polls, um, especially in some of the swing states, things are a lot closer. And of course, that's what that's what matters more. Um, but but even so, if you look at some of the key swing states, if you look at Florida, um, especially, um, which is really important sort of for for Trump to, you know, it's really important for Trump to get Florida in order to win um, 270 votes in Electoral College. You know, Florida is moving away from Trump, continues to, um, and and Trump's not doing well enough in some of the other states to to you know make up that ground, um, and so that's why currently the 538 model has him at something like a 12 out of 100 um, you know chances of, of you know ultimately winning this thing, which is not nothing, right? Um, we shouldn't write Trump off; that would no. be a, a mistake. Um, but and we could expect the race to tighten up just a little bit um, in the last couple of weeks of the election, especially since Trump had a decent, you might say, debate performance. So don't be surprised by that. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where things stand. The Senate is is really tight right now, um, but there's a pretty good chance that the Democrats will will at least get control of the Senate, um, at least get get 50 or 51 votes. But of course, uh, what really matters there is is not just whether the Democrats get control of the Senate, but what the margin is. Um, if they have 50 or, they have 50 or 51, um, if they, let's just say they have 51 majority, right? Mm-hmm. All it takes is a couple of Democrats peeling off 
um, on a really controversial issue that they're not comfortable voting on, whether it's like core packing or adding states so that they can increase, you know, the Democratic representation of the Senate, whatever. Those sorts of things are going to be really dicey. But you you increase, you know, the Democratic margin of the Senate to like 53, 54, then there's a lot more sort of maneuvering room people. for yeah, for Chuck Schumer, um, who would be the majority leader. So, so at this point, you should pay attention not only to whether or not Democrats win the Senate on November third, but also by what margin, if if they do win. Yeah. And let's look at some of the propensities for that, because right now, uh, Dem uh, Republicans have a two-seat uh, majority in the Senate, um, and the chances of getting from uh, from That's a two-seat or three, sorry, yeah, a three-seat majority, to get from that to Democratic control of the Senate, so just getting 51 Democratic seats, is somewhere in the range of, of what, I, what, I, what 538 calls likely, right? Um, right. Meaning it's more, it's, it's going to happen more times than not. But we're, as humans, we are not good at thinking through things yeah. probabilistically. We tend to think of something as a near certainty, a near impossibility, or a coin flip. And a lot of these probabilities we're talking about are none of those things. So Donald Trump having a 12% chance of winning the presidency, according to the model right now, is not impossibility, but we tend to collapse something like a 12% chance into impossibility. As it turns out, it happens 12% of the time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, and this gets us back to 2016, right? So I've heard right. a lot of, at this, at this point in my life, nervous Democrats comparing the Biden lead to Hillary Clinton's lead back in 2016. Is there any validity to comparing these two, these two leads? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of ways in which 2016 is a very different election than what we have now. Right. Um, so, you know, Trump and Biden are, are very known quantities point. Um, whereas Trump in 2016, I mean, yeah, he was famous. But thought, well, maybe he's going to be different when he gets into the office and Republicans can sort of talk to themselves about, hey, he, he might change. Um, and so I'm going to go and vote for him. Um, so there's that. Um, now, it turns out that, you know, Trump and Clinton were very strongly disliked in 2016. Um, they both had sort of um, disapproval numbers um, just in the tank. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and those people who disliked both tended to break more in favor of Trump. And late deciding voters in 2016 also tended to break more towards Trump. Um, but it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case this time around. Biden is actually liked more by the electorate than either Trump or Clinton was. Um, and so Biden's current favorability, unfavorability numbers are 50 to, 50 to 44. So 50 favorable, 44% unfavorable. Trump, it's basically the reverse. It's 43% favorable to 54 unfavorable, which is which is really high, right? Yep. Um, and there's, <laughs> yeah, so you look at that, you look at um, how uh, the national polls in 2016 were actually closer overall uh, over the entire stretch campaign. There were more fluctuations um, in 2016 and changes in trends um, than there were now. There were a lot of up and downs in 2016, but this race has been remarkably stable for the next three or four months. Um, so there's a there's a lot of reasons why it's looking like, or we, we, we should be reticent to draw direct comparisons with 2016. Just because Trump is on the ballot in both doesn't mean that they're, that they're the same race. 
So I'll, I'll agree with that. Uh, the way the polls have looked, the way the states have looked, is much more stable in 2020 than it was in 2016. The, um, even though the uh, the forecasts are similar, uh, the especially uh, Joe Biden's the stability of his lead in swing states is very different from what Clinton had, which is a much more stochastic sort of up and down kind of performance in right. key swing states. That said, there is a big question hanging out here for this election, which also means we can't compare it to 2016, but also means maybe we shouldn't invest too much in that stability, which is the voting model this year is just bizarre. We're used to sure. seeing a small number of mail-in ballots and then the vast majority of Americans casting their ballot on election day. And this year, it's just very different. It's a very different process with a significant number of Americans having already voted at this point. Um, what are the current numbers? Do you do you recall? Uh, I checked this morning. There's this um, website. It's electionproject.github.io, um, run by a political oh, science professor yep. out of um, I think it's University of Florida or Florida State. Can't remember. It's out of Florida. Don't kill okay. me, Florida listeners. Um, but yeah, so basically, as of this morning, um, it, I think it was like 50.8 million people have already mailed in their votes or voted early, right? Yep. Now, and there's a lag in that too, right? Um, so there's probably a lot of <laughs> ballots that are currently being processed um, by the Postal Service that are in transit that aren't included. So, so we're looking, you know, currently, as of right now, maybe 20 like one like one quarter or one third of americans have already voted who are going yep. to vote right yep. um and and by election day that could be half I mean, that's that's crazy right mm -hmm. that's a big deal do we have any evidence or any scholarship uh to tell us what early voting like this might do in a presidential election does this change our expectations yeah. at all well, I mean, a, a few things. So normally people who vote absentee or early vote um, are equally split between Democrats and Republicans. Um, and so and so this doesn't you know, seem to have much of a direct impact beyond the fact that if you do really vote, especially really early, you don't have the option to change your mind. Um, if if something happens, if there's an October surprise, if there's a if there's a weird debate performance, you don't get to change your mind. Um, but of course, you know, that number is so much higher now. Um, that means that there's a lot of people whose whose votes are locked up. Not that there's a lot of those people who would change their mind anyway, right? I think most people who are early voting are the sort that have already made up their minds, right? It's the the holdouts still haven't dropped their ballots in the mail yet or are waiting until election day. So so I think that probably the biggest the biggest thing to keep in mind is is sort of the difference between Democrats and voting voting more early than Republicans, right? Mm -hmm. um, we're we're still looking at like two to one, three to one Democrats voting early compared to Republicans. Um, and that could have an interesting sort of effect on election day uh, because, you know, some states aren't going to be counting these these um, mail-in absentee ballots until election day itself, right? Yeah. Um, and in some states, those ballots um, are allowed to be, you know, postmarked by election day. And as long as they arrive within in one or two weeks um, at the counting offices. They can be counted, right? Um, and because Democrats are going to be disproportionately voting more early, you know, and voting by mail, the Republicans, basically, you have this sort of trickle of, you know, Democratic ballots coming in and being counted and sort of eating away whatever lead, perhaps, 
a Republican candidate has in that election. And that could cause all sorts of, you know, cries of, of election stealing um, or the election not being legitimate. Exactly. And at the very least, it's going to lead to delay um, in certain states, which is going to also create a, a weird of dynamic this, this time around. Yeah, it's a perceptual problem on our part because the yeah. voting may not of who votes online, who votes, er, I mean, not online, excuse me, who votes mail-in, who votes... Right in person early and then who votes on election day those may not be evenly distributed amongst democrats and republicans so we may get these weird wave effects so if we just take the supposition that there's a slight propensity for democrats to vote more frequently either early vote early in-person voting or mail-in voting those votes might clear first, those those early in-person okay. votes. And there's been 15 million of them cast so far, according to President McDonald from University of Florida. So you could imagine on election night, as the polls close, if uh, if polling locations have been already tabulating some of those in-person votes, you could see Democrats come out to a really big lead right away with like, you know, just like a few percent reporting. And then as the other in-person votes are tabulated, Republicans take the lead. And then yeah. as the mail-in ballots are counted, Democrats swing back in the lead. And so, and, and all of that is going to cause both sides to lose their collective minds. And that's not, <laughs> and, that, and that's just because of, of a perceptual thing, right? Because we think that these numbers right. should be fairly even from the very right. beginning. And, right. and so, yeah, that, I think that's a big problem for us. Yeah. Uh, that's going to depend on how things play out in particular states, right? So some states, we probably won't know final results on election night, including Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, um, part of the so-called former blue wall, um, states that Trump picked up um, last time around, right? We probably won't know the results on election night from those states, unless it's just a complete blowout, right? Yeah. Um, but states that we will probably have very firm results on election night include Arizona, North Carolina, and Florida, because God bless these states, they are counting mail-in ballots before election day. They're doing the smart thing you know, give these states a cookie, right? Uh, they're, 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 right. they're counting ballots well, well in advance of election day. And so we're going to have good results from these states. And so Trump really needs these states, if, especially if he loses Florida and loses North Carolina. Um, and we should know that by election night. If he loses both those states, it's really unlikely that he's going to actually win the whole thing because then he's going to have to win in, in Pennsylvania and in Wisconsin and Michigan, which are even more unlikely. So... Um, so it kind of depends on how things play out. And so, so, so look at certain states um, on election night and see which way they go. Arizona, North Carolina, Florida. Um, and then depending on how things go there, it may not really matter if we don't have results from Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Right. It may be enough that Donald Trump doesn't concede on election night. And I wouldn't expect either candidate Possibly. to concede on election night. But the writing might be on the wall pretty quickly. And, and then depending on what members of Congress do, they could change things as well. Because one of the things I think we overlook in our media narrative about the election is Donald Trump may be reticent to concede the presidency, and that might have certain constitutional crises type effects. But just as but we've talked about how close the Senate is, and there might be some very close Senate races that we may not know yeah. the results of for several weeks. And that might change the strategic calculus of um, – of, of Mitch McConnell and 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 the, and the Senate, right? Um, if you don't know yeah. whether Lindsey Graham has won re-election in South Carolina, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think 
I think the chances of us not knowing sort of the, the margins of, you know, democratic control of the Senate or just just the margin of the Senate in general, like that's going to be a much longer term question, um, probably than which way the presidential election goes. That margin, that's going to be really important. Right. Um, no matter which direction the, the uh, presidential election goes. So we've been talking a fair amount about kind of trying to predict the election right now. And I'll just um, I'll ask you to do something which is not fair, but if that's okay. Uh, if you want to do it, that's fine. Uh, but Nate Silver, who and let me let's just talk a little bit about 538 and Nate Silver and what they and yeah. what their methodology is. Because at the at the core, it's fairly easy to explain. Uh, their core presumption is one poll is good. And if the poll is better, it's a better poll. But what's better than a good poll? Lots of good polls. And so yes. what Silver has basically made a career out of is aggregating other people's data and uh, you and weighting it effectively using his statistical training to privilege better data over time, to essentially allow his models to learn which polls are more accurate over time and then to give those polls pride of place in future predictions. All that to say, he has a overall prediction that the chance that Democrats control the House, the Senate, and the presidency as a trifecta is about a 70% chance. Now, that's a compound probabilistic chance, right? Um, and we're yeah. humans are bad at probabilistic thinking. We're really bad at compound probabilistic thinking. But <laughs> yeah. do you think that that 70% chance is um, high, low, or do you think Silver's got it about right? Ooh, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty comfortable with that. Um, I mean, I sort of take it out of the equation um, just because, I mean, there are so many, so many, you know, house seats that are currently controlled by Democrats who are going to, who appear to be comfortably winning, right? I mean, this is also the way things go, right? Whenever, you know, there's these down the ballot effects of, you know, whenever, you know, the, the Democrat, you know, running for president is way ahead and the the you know the the challenger is unpopular you get down ballot effects right so it, it shouldn't be even surprising historically that the house would stay democrat maybe even become more democratic right so that's we can kind of maybe take that off just for the sake of thinking through this and simplifying it so it really comes down to the senate and the presidency um you know the chances that biden you know wins wins a presidency are fairly high I would say he's definitely favored, but there's no guarantees, obviously. Um, and then you throw the Senate, and that's where that's more things are more up, up in the air, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, 70% seems about right. What I'm more interested in is if Biden does win, what's that margin in the Senate? Kind of like what I said earlier. Yeah. But, but yeah, we, we are bad at thinking probabilistically. I think, I forgot if I said this in the podcast, but I know I definitely said this in, in class is, you know, says, you know, Trump has a, a 12 and 100% chance of, 12 and 100 chance of winning, right? Yeah. You might say, oh, that's not very high. Like, if someone came along and said, you have a 12% chance of metastatic cancer in the next five years, you'd be like, holy crap, that's really, really high, right? Yeah, and that's, that. um, that's deeply uncomfortable, right? So, yeah. um, so whenever we're thinking about probabilities, we should sort of take those numbers and put them in different contexts see how we react right because um because we're not good about thinking about these things sort of objectively but i don't know if that answer what, what do you think chris like is this 70 yeah. percent a good figure well what i what i'm concerned about is i don't know how silver in his model accounts for the um 
the inter interprobabilistic influence of these of these chances on each other, right? right. If Biden does, if, if Trump does surprisingly well and actually takes that twelve percent modeled chance right now and and wins a second term, right? And basically, what that what that would mean is he pulls out. Uh, he, he he wins all the coin flip states, right? You know, he he's going to win Ohio, he's going to win Iowa, he's going to win Georgia, he's going to win Texas, and he's also going to win like Pennsylvania and Florida, right? And if he does that, he's basically recreated his twenty sixteen election victory, and he's he's reelected. But if to get him to that place, doesn't that also have to bode really well for senators in those places, right? Which means that. Um, uh, senators like the two like the two Georgia races both end up going for Republicans and Georgia because of a special election has both of its Senate seats up this year. If if Trump does well enough to win in Georgia, does that also benefit the Georgia senators? Same thing with um, with winning Texas. Same thing with winning uh, if he wins North Carolina, for example, right? I mean, like, do these things kind of then um, uh, sort of compound each other, right? So I guess I think I'm inclined to believe the way he's modeled it. I think this is right, but I think it doesn't mean that there's going to be a clear standard deviation away from 70% in either direction. It's likely to have fat tails with things ending up yeah. more extreme in one direction or the other. And we'll, we'll say, oh, it doesn't seem like he was right, but no, he wasn't on average. He just, the, t the tails were fatter, if that makes some yeah. sense. Yeah, that makes sense, too. And I think it, it is hard to tell because it can be difficult to say to, to think about how a presidential race can interact with down the ballot races like governor, like statewide governor senator races. Right. Because um, because, you know, a lot of people vote sort of straight party ticket. Right. And the more of those people who turn out for your side, the better it is for everyone in the party. Right. Um, you know, Republicans, a lot of strong Republicans are pretty enthusiastic about coming out voting. Well, the same thing on the Democratic side. So what but what are those people are gonna in the middle going to do? People who really don't like Trump, uh, but who aren't gung-ho about Biden, right? Um, either because, you know, he's he's been around forever or because he represents a, a Democratic Party that's going further left. And so, you know, like I'm curious to see like how many people are gonna split their their ballots down the middle saying, like, I really don't like Trump. I want some normalcy in the White House, but I'm not completely comfortable with the direction that the Democratic Party is heading. And I want to sort of hedge my bets um, and not give Democrats unified control of the whole thing, right? So, so maybe I will, I will, you know, not vote for Trump, even though I'm a Republican. But I'm, you know, going to vote for Biden, but then I'll vote for Republicans the rest of the way down, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I just don't know. I mean, these. <laughs> It's the weird. Con the um, conventional wisdom is in our polarized society that um, cr uh, ticket splitting is, is is increasingly rare. True. But where it could happen is those low information voters. And the other thing we haven't really talked about in this discussion of modeling is also trying to predict the level of turnout. Uh, again, conventional wisdom seems to suggest that people are expecting turnout in this election to be higher than it was in 2016. But I'm not sure how much higher. And I'm not sure how I'm much sure. Yeah. That, that matters. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are, it's interesting, there are um, a lot of first-time voters that are already coming out and voting early, which is which is kind of interesting, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we can't really tell at this point whether they're, you know, kind of going, you know, far more towards Trump, the Republicans, or towards by the Democrats. Um, but it is interesting, we are, we're having a lot of people sort of coming out of the woodworks and voting for the first time in a very long time. Um, it'll be interesting to see 
um, in the end, um, if that ends up tipping the race in, in one direction or the other. There's apparently a lot of Americans that feel like they don't have to, that they typically don't want to weigh in, but this election they want to weigh in. So. I don't know about you, but that surprises me because back when COVID first broke out, and I was thinking about this back in the spring, my thought was, oh, we're going to have a really low turnout election, and this is going to be a very base-oriented election, which it has been. But I was thinking sure. it was going to be a lot of, but there wouldn't be a lot of casual voters, low-information right. voters, because people would be scared to go up, show up to polling places. And for whatever reason, the opposite's been true. We, we're seeing more turnout, um, which as someone yeah. who just likes the idea of democracy, I'm sort of heartened by. But yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an interesting point. Um, I mean, you know, there is more high turnout, it seems, um, at least because, you know, every state seems to have offered um, an early voting option that seems attractive to a lot of people. So there's that. Um, and you're right that both campaigns have stuck largely to a sort of turnout the base strategy, especially on the Trump side. And perhaps, you know, that's a really big mistake if indeed turnout is really high, because that suggests that there are more than just the bases coming out to vote. Um, there are a lot of people who don't consider themselves firmly in either camp, you know, sold out for Trump, sold out for the Democrats, whatever. And that suggests that maybe the right strategy for these campaigns early on would have been to pivot more towards the middle and to pivot earlier. Right. Yep. Um, but that's that's not that's not something that either side has done well. And certainly um, Trump, the Trump campaign has not. I think another reason that's you know, some people have been pointing out that. You know, perhaps the reason why people are coming out to vote more is just because um, there's so many important political events that that have happened, right? I mean, and everything mm -hmm. is politicized. I mean, we, mm -hmm. we have COVID and the political response to that. We've had um, we've had racial unrest, um, to put it mildly. Uh, we've had we've had impeachment. Remember that happened um, yeah. less than a year ago. <laughs> um, and all of these things that are just you know saturating people's minds with you know with just politics, and and perhaps that's why people feel they need to to step in and make their voices heard um, because yeah. they actually do have an opinion this time around that compels them to get out to the ballot box. So. Yeah. Well, amongst all of these things we've been talking about, there's something else that happens. And I, you've provided us a helpful list of your uh, top four um, most prevalent myths about polling and election modeling. And so I just, this is this is a chance. I'm going to ask you about these um, and just briefly explain why you think these things are myths. Uh, I think I'm inclined to agree with you, but I want to see what uh, how the scholarship supports that. So talk to us about your top uh, polling myth. Okay, so so these kind of like some of these are more like straight up myths, um, and some of them are more like hypotheses that don't have a lot of support, but they're not just crazy. Um, okay, so I think. A, and the reason why I want to talk about this is because I've been getting questions from from you know students from from friends and family like you know aren't the polls just are they just wrong right um, a lot of sort of like lack of trust in polling right and and you know that's because everyone's sort of scarred by the the the, the, the unexpected turn of 2016 right so everyone's got that sort of hanging all that baggage sort of hanging in the back of their minds and that's leading everyone to sort of question the polls so. Um, so the first, um, which we'll try to dispense with quickly, is, the first myth is that polls are biased, false, and fake, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's true that some polls are really bad, like the, the polls that are produced by, you know, particular campaigns, right? Their internal polls, right? That they sometimes release. So some polls are just straight up bad. But there's quite a few polls that are actually quite solid that you can look at the results over time and see, and see if they actually, you know, match 
election results. And that's why you can actually grade polls to see how good of a job they do, right? And a lot of these polling houses, they actually have incentive um, to actually try to get it right. Um, because if they don't get it right, then, you know, their poll is worthless um, and they're not going to get published, right? right. People are going to stop paying attention to them. Um, and that, that means reduction of funds to go conduct more polls, right? So, so there's a lot of, you know, pretty solid polls out there. Um, and we shouldn't write off these good polls as being biased, false, or fake. Okay. Second myth. Um, the polls were wrong in 2016. We've talked about this a little bit already. And here we should not look at particular polls. We should look at polling aggregates. So 538 is a great tool here. So the national level polling aggregate was actually quite close in predicting um, the final vote outcome, um, popular vote between Clinton and Trump. Right. Most state level aggregates were close as well. There were a few misses in key states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, most notably, all of which Trump won, but which polls indicated Clinton would likely win. This now, was can I, can I ask was wasn't that partially the case that those states were underpolled? Yes. Right. So there's a couple of things. There was underpolling in those states meaning simply that uh, there weren't enough high quality polls conducted in those states. And of course the more polling the better. It's harder to poll particular states, right, to get responses from smaller populations, right? Yep. State as opposed to national. The other problem is that um, the polls did not include enough white non-educated folks in their polling samples. Um, and these people turned out um, disproportionately to support Trump. And that's what produced, and so basically you had um, polls that in these key states missed and that sort of led everyone to sort of, um, you know, mispredict, so to speak, the election. Um, now, pollsters have actually been working like this time around to correct that error by having lots of polling in those states and to include more white, non-college -educa non educated people in their sample. There's some concern that they might be overcorrecting on that score, um, which could actually end up meaning that Biden is doing better in those states than we might expect. So, so basically, um, yeah, there, there's not a lot of evidence that there, you know, is a consistent sort of widespread polling error this time around. It's, it's certainly possible. That's why you know, we do have that sort of margin of error that's built into every poll, right? Um, but again, pollsters are trying to correct for this. And as Nate Silver likes to point out, pollsters are often still, still sort of fighting the last battle. Yeah. Um, fighting the errors yeah. that they made four years ago. Um, and sometimes that can lead to overcorrection, which creates its own problem in the other direction. All right, that's that's two. So polls are biased, it's a myth. Polls are, well, at least generally speaking. Right. Polls were way off in 2016. How about the, the third myth? Third myth. Um, we've talked about this some already. It's the shy Trump voter. This is the idea that Trump supporters are basically lying to pollsters about who they support. So they pick up the phone, they're asked, who, do you, who are you gonna vote for? And they say Biden or undecided or third party or whatever. Um, and remember online polls, so polls that people take on the internet, um, tend to show similar results to phone polls on this. The, the, the sort of theory behind the shy Trump voter thing is that, hey, Trump voters don't feel like they are allowed to say that they support Trump because it's not PC or whatever. And so they, they feel like they have to obfuscate and lie to pollsters. But of course, 
it turns out that online polls, you know, online polls shouldn't reflect, you know, shouldn't be a, a place in which people feel scared to share their real opinions. It turns out online polls have similar results to phone polls. Also, um, here's another thing to keep in mind. Now, pollsters, when they ask people, before they ask, who are you going to vote for, they will ask if you're registered with a particular party. Are you a registered, you know, as a Democrat to vote or as a Republican to vote? Um, and, and so you can learn about their partisanship even before you learn who they're going to support. And so if there were shy Trump voters, we'd expect to see a lot of registered Republicans stating that they're going to vote for Biden or that they're undecided. But yeah. we haven't seen this yet. We haven't seen any of that. We haven't seen all of these registered Republicans basically saying they're they're not going to vote for Trump, right? So, so I think the shy Trump voter, um, you know, hypothesis has very little evidence to support it. Okay. Okay. Fourth um, hypothesis or myth um, of the silent Trump voter, and this is the idea that Trump supporters aren't even answering the phone, not even responding to polls. Now, keep in mind, again. Pollsters are asking people about their partisanship. Mm -hmm. If there were silent Trump voters, pollsters would detect that registered Republicans were responding to polls less than registered Democrats. Are we following? Yeah. So, but it turns out that pollsters, they're reporting that Republicans, registered Republicans, are actually more likely to respond to pollsters this time around than registered mm -hmm. Democrats which would seem to suggest that there's probably not a bunch of silent Trump voters out there. So for the silent Trump voter hypothesis to be true, you'd have to get this weird effect within the group of Republican registered voters in which those who are Republican and likely to vote for Trump would have to be responding less than those who are Republican and decided not to vote for Trump. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is this is quite unlikely, I would say. Um, there's yeah, there's probably a few, but it's it's probably um, a minuscule number. So we should mention that this uh, the grandfather of all of these ideas about um, when people respond to pollsters and how they respond to pollsters um, is probably the the Bradley effect, which was observed what probably. 25 years, 30 years ago, and was uh, the result of phone polls conducted, I believe it was in a Maryland gubernatorial election, where an African-American uh, candidate was running for governor, and uh, the polls were off systematically uh, in phone polls because um, in some cases, the pollster asking questions had a voice that was uh, characterized as an African-American voice, and some portion of Maryland voters were unwilling to stick. Maybe it was Virginia. Don't 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 uh, don't don't, don't don't mail in if I have the state wrong. But they were unwilling to um, basically say they weren't going to support uh, uh, Bradley, the candidate, because of because of race, right? And so there was about this five point depression, and there was questions in 2016 if there would be a similar kind of effect with female pollsters asking questions of respondents about Hillary Clinton, right? You wouldn't want to say, I'm not going to vote for Hillary Clinton because she's a woman and you're a woman and I don't want to say that to you because I don't want to be impolite. And we've sort of we've sort of taken these ideas and then created this shy Trump and silent Trump voters. But to be quite frank, there was no Bradley effect with the Hillary Clinton campaign. Uh, pollsters did not see this reporting error and we're not seeing one now either. So to the extent that there was a Bradley effect, it seems to be pretty narrow and pretty limited to a, a kind of a, a state level race. And we've extrapolated way too much from that as far as I can tell. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, again, you know, the, the few key polling misses last time around didn't have to do with people not so much wanting to express support for Trump. It was just the pollsters didn't get their sample composition yep. quite right. Yep. Um, because of because of well-founded assumptions about the prevalency of you know, or, or how often certain demographics come out to vote, but that shifted right yep, in certain exactly. states, and then they didn't do enough polling in those states in general to to pick up on how they needed to make adjustments in their samples, and that's that's why we had this problem, right? Um, but it seems like they're they're correcting for that problem this time. One other thing to keep in mind is that sometimes in really big wave elections, like when one party really sweeps in, of course, we don't know if this is going to be a wave election, but it could be. Um, but in wave elections, sometimes polls underestimate the size of the wave, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, Republicans are saying like, well, we should discount the polls. Um, and even Democrats are saying like, well, this could be a lot closer um, than the polls yep. are saying. It's also possible that this could be a blowout right um and and democrats could could really sweep in biden could win an electoral college landslide and the popular vote you could get at big margins for democrats in the senate and padding their margin in the house that is just as possible as trump eking out the win actually more possible and if that happens we'll look back and say did we get the polling wrong and we and i think the answer at least at this point is not yet because so far we're saying that's still within the realm of possibility. It's still part of that probabilistic thinking that we need to account for. Okay, one more question uh, before we break for the day. All right. How, on, a, uh, on a scale of one to 10, how worried are you about external foreign influences on this election? You love these questions, Chris. I'm asking you to place your place your response and a feeling thermometer. Um, yeah, a foreign interference. I mean, okay, so maybe we could say whether there's foreign interference, whether it's it versus its impact. So on a, so I would say like, yeah, 10 out of 10, there is foreign interference. Right? Absolutely. How worried um, about, are, are you about it? Because we know that Iran, uh, there, there, were, there were just another investigation just announced yeah. yesterday. Yeah. Um, Iran, Russia, China all appear to have operations for um, spreading voter misinformation yeah. um, in the poll. Uh, but is, is it going to be but, significant enough to alter people's, uh, the results of the election? Yeah, I'm not so worried about the spread of information impacting results, especially nationally. I'd be curious to some of these races, like state level races that are really close, right? Um, that just a, a, a point or two either direction could shift who wins. Like that gives me more cause for concern. What I'm even, I mean, so we've had um, misinformation um, from, from Russia for, I mean, really for the past five years, right? Um, yeah. And the, the amount of sof the sophistication with which the Russians are actually integrating themselves into our social media networks, right? And, and micro, like literally the Russians are micro-targeting various subcultures with certain messages mm -hmm. to try to increase polarization. It's actually like, genu like go go read about it. It's, it's real and it's genuinely like frightening. Um, what I'm concerned about too is, is in this report is that there's evidence that Russia and Iran are like hacking into our electoral infrastructure, right? And if they can do that, can they literally go in and tweak the actual election results, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, and and maybe that doesn't affect, maybe they can't do that in every state because every state has a different, you know, system that they use. But what if they do that in a few 
really close states. I don't know. That I mean, seven, seven out of ten, maybe. What about you? Okay. I am worried about it for a slightly different reason, which is okay. um and I am worried about it. I'm less worried about the hacking of actual voting returns, which is entirely plausible. And I've had some conversations with people who work on voter security, electoral security. And the good news is we've taken the step of moving back towards having paper ballots, right? So getting away from all electronic ballots, which was the big concern. But my, my bigger concern is this, given the level of polarization in the United States, even if Russia or Iran or someone was half-heartedly successful at causing um, a vote to look like it might have been altered, you're going to throw so much um, uncertainty and so much ill faith into the voting. Uh, whoever lost can just say, well, the whole thing was rigged anyway. Yep. And yep. at the very end of the day, we really need all of our um, electoral outcomes, people to say, well, at the very, you know, I don't like this outcome, but at least the American people decided this. Right. And if we lose that, I think that's a significant issue for us. Right. Yeah, it could undermine the legitimacy, right, of the election and yep. its, its outcome. And then it could be picked up on by the losing side and say, um, hey, you know, I lost because this election was stolen um, by, you know, some, some foreign group, right? And that just undermines legitimacy even more. Um, even if the impact wasn't that big, right? They can still yep. sort of claim, you know, point to some vague evidence of interference. Um, and, and you know, and campaigns themselves could undermine legitimacy. Um, and that just, you know, creates, injects even more toxin <laughs> into, our, into our poisonous uh, political environment. Yep. I think that in the, if, if, if whoever's the winner of the presidency, if we drop just a few uh, uh, more zeros behind uh, election infrastructure as an investment, um, I, don't, I think it'd be money well spent. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, yeah, I, I concur. All right, well, we have <sighs> only one more election shock therapy before the election. Holy um, moly. <laughs> uh, so we'll be back uh, next week to talk about some of the things to look forward to as we move into the actual week of the a week of the election itself, especially if anything changes that time. We'll take a final look at the polls, a final look at campaign messaging. And let me just also say that if you are listening to us and you are in the Bethel bubble, if you're in our sort of our little COVID circle here, um, <laughs> we are holding an election watch party on the night of the election. You can join us in the Bethel underground. We'll be there with our students. We'll have some, we'll be socially distanced. We'll be safe. We'll have masks on. Uh, but we'll also be doing a series of micropods uh, on the night of the election, as we've done for the last couple of election nights, and talking about what we see. We don't expect to know everything that night, but we'll have a few things to say early on. So uh, please join us for that, either in person or online if you can. So. Um, Matt, what are you guys reading in uh, intro to international? Or, I'm sorry, intro to American government right now. Intro to American government. Oh, uh, they're just slogging through their textbook. I did have them read in <laughs> class the other day um, a fun little piece um, um, by a by a guy, David French, actually, who uh -huh. basically talks about how he feels politically homeless um, and how I, I encourage him to think about um, basically how it's it's 
even a good thing to feel to not feel at home in either political party, um, because ultimately we don't have as Christians, we don't have an allegiance to either political party. Right. And it turns out that both political parties can be allies with us on on issues that Christians should care about. And both parties can be critiqued um, by, you know, the 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 principles of Christianity that that have to bear on politics. And so we thought through that and I, I think we had a series of good discussions. Nice. That's great. Yeah. Well, I, well, I'd say I, I need to head off to international relations. We are, mm-hmm. uh, because we're sort of in this weird hybridized COVID world with some students zooming in and some students in class, uh, socially distanced with masks on those kinds of things. Um, I am reviving the six party talks the negotiations between oh. North and South Korea with the United States and Russia and China and Japan present uh, to discuss a nuclearization on the Korean Peninsula. And so they're in separate teams, uh, a little bit of shell diplomacy. Uh, and so we're going to be setting up some more of that today. So that's where I'm off to. Right on. Nice. Now, I have a, a really important question for you, Chris. Yes, sir. Are you watching the, the Ohio State football game tomorrow? I... Well, amongst my other th- uh, things I take joy, <laughs> joy in here is um, I am the advisor for Bethel's Mild United Nations program. Uh, and yes. normally we, we go to, in the fall, we go to the American Mild United Nations conference in Chicago. That conference is online and it's this weekend. So I may see a little bit of the Buckeyes play, but I'll also be shuttling to Bethel with um, some uh, sustenance for the Maldivian students who are spending 20 hours in Zoom meetings this weekend, uh, <laughs> talking Fun. about and playing, representing, proudly representing the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So, oh, um, right so I've, I've got a busy weekend. Yeah. Well, you, look at you being a, a good professor. And there we go. Students there ahead of go. your your Big Ten uh, affiliation. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll still wear red and gray for the for the weekend. Though. You're kind of wearing red now-ish. Yeah, it's not quite the right color. It's, 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 it's almost a gopher maroon, although, anyway. Ooh, um, throw some yellow in there. So. Yeah. All right. Before we get too sartorial, thank you for listening to <laughs> Election Shock Therapy. You can always get in touch with us, electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to the channel we're on. It's channel 3900, a lot of great podcasts. Uh, from here at our beloved institution. Uh, there's an episode of Avatar with Academics dropping tomorrow. Check it out. Uh, until then, until we come back in your feed, thanks for listening to us, and go Royals. Go Royals!